BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a Texas abortion provider says it's become quiet, eerily quiet, since the nation's most restrictive anti-abortion law took effect there last week. Similarly, a teen hotline operator that advises minors seeking abortions told The New Yorker that calls have slowed, suspecting they're afraid to ask for help and have resigned themselves to becoming parents against their will. We'll talk with providers in Texas and other states about the impact of SB 8 one week after the U.S. Supreme Court declined to step in and stop it. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Texas's anti-abortion law, or SB 8, prohibits abortions at six weeks of pregnancy before many realize they're pregnant and with no exceptions for rape or incest. But Texas Governor Greg Abbott, in his remarks defending the law this week, claimed a rape victim would not be forced to give birth. Planned Parenthood Action Pack responded by tweeting, If you don't understand many people don't even know they're pregnant until after six weeks, then you shouldn't be restricting their options. The Texas law also includes a provision that encourages private citizens to sue anyone who provides an abortion or, quote, aids and abets the procedure after six weeks. I should note reports today say the Biden administration is preparing to fight the law. Joining me first is President and CEO of Planned Parenthood South Texas, Jeffrey Hans. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mina, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. What's this past week been like for Planned Parenthood South Texas? This week has been emotionally painful and psychically draining for all of us who work here. And such a flip from what was happening the week before, um, it's, it's very difficult to live in this new reality that the governor, the lieutenant governor, and other legislators have created here. It's just terrible. When you say that it's so different from the week before, what was that week like? Well, I mean, because right now things feel strangely quiet, whereas last week when we were rolling towards September 1st, when this terrible new law was planned to take effect, there was a palpable desperation in the air and in the voices of the people who called us. Hmm. We you know, we don't provide abortion care every day. I mean, it's a, you know, when you measure by the number of patients we see each year, it's actually a small part of what we do. But on the day we provide abortion care, you know, we might provide procedures or mifepristone to maybe, you know, 15 to 25 or maybe 30 people. But in the week leading up to September 1st, um, and people were starting to realize what might actually happen, we had teams at our clinics that were working 12 and 13 hour days. We had days where we provided abortion care to over a hundred people, which would be at least a fourfold increase of what would be considered, you know, historically typical. And you could hear it in people's voices that they were desperately trying to get in under the wire and knew that it was a race against time. And then the curtain fell. Why do you suspect it's gone quiet, Jeffrey Hans? It's not like suddenly fewer people need abortion care. Um, You're right. And and so, and we should always remind ourselves that, you know, no matter what kind of um, ridiculous law gets passed, you don't change people's love lives, sex lives, and um, whether or not they do or not get pregnant by a law. But, you know, like when you go to our website right now, we say like, yes, we are doing everything we can legally to fight this. And we intend to resume providing abortion care as soon as we can find some reasonable response from a court that says this is madness and must be stopped. But until then, 
we are currently pausing abortion care. And so I think people go to our website, they see that, and they start figuring out they have got to go somewhere else. I mean, the news coverage about this has blanketed people's consciousness. And so people know that they've got to find somewhere else to go if they think they're anything more than five and a half or so weeks pregnant. And so my understanding is that while our phones are, I mean, we're, we're taking care of people and providing all the healthcare we normally do, Right. But while our phones are not talking to a lot of people about abortion, phones are ringing um, all the more in places like Albuquerque, New Mexico and Denver, Colorado, where women are now calling to find out whether or not there's a way for them to get out of state, across state lines and find the care that they desperately need but cannot find in Texas any longer. Jeffrey Hans, can you? Tell me about the the makeup of Planned Parenthood South Texas's client base. Who do you usually see? What what kinds of needs do they tend to have if they're seeking abortion care? Well, I mean, again, the majority of our patients are not seeking abortion care. Like last year, we saw twenty four thousand. Right. I'm sorry. I mean, the makeup the Planned Parenthood's client base typically of those who do seek abortions in, in oh, your yes. clinic. Yeah. And so of that. 24,900 last year, a little over 3000 people came to us and we were able to, and we provided abortion care for them because we were able to, those people are those 3000, they are, I would venture to say, although I've never met you, they are you and they are just like me and they're just like everyone else. The majority of people that we provide abortion care to are and this may come as a surprise to some people that they're already parents. They are raising children. Mm -hmm. um, they are people typically oh, like over half are in their 20s. But we have patients who receive abortion care from us who are in their 30s and into their early 40s. Um, they tend to be people from all over the economic spectrum because here in Texas, if a person of economic means were seeking abortion, it's not like that person could find abortion care at you know, their OBGYN office. They would have to come to a specialty clinic like a Planned Parenthood or another facility that sets itself out to provide abortion care. And so, yes, some of our patients need economic assistance and some of our patients are not in need of economic assistance at all. So it's it really is all over the map. Can you talk about the hardship of having to go out of state, especially on those patients who do have limited economic means? That is, that is um, okay, so look, I grew up in San Antonio. I've lived my entire life here. I grew up with over 50 first cousins throughout South Texas. I know what the world, the culture, the community, and the families here are. For people who do not have economic resources, the kinds of travel that we're talking about could very well just be a non-starter, a complete deal breaker. I mean, here in South Texas, especially, you know, like to drive to Albuquerque, New Mexico is probably over 10 hours. Mm -hmm. um, and for, for some people, that sort of a trip they've never made, they've never traveled that far. They don't know how they're going to get the money. They may work at jobs where you don't have paid time off that you accrue and can take for personal emergencies. You know, if you're not at work, you don't get paid. And then when I look to the south of us, you know, crossing... The U.S.-Mexico border for an abortion is fraught with difficulty. I mean, notwithstanding to this week's brave news from the Mexico Supreme Court that has decriminalized abortion in Mexico, um, it's not like you can cross the border and there is a doctor like you would find here in San Antonio or in the Rio Grande Valley that will provide an abortion for you. It's you're going to a pharmacy and you're trying to find a medication that maybe is used for a different purpose. And you've read online how it might be able to be something you could use. So that is complicated. But the part that escapes a lot of people's attention is like, let's say someone who's living in Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, 
and does not have the kind of documentation that um, she needs to be here. She can cross into Mexico to look for this medication and take her chances with that, but she's not gonna be able to cross back. If she tries to leave the, the Rio Grande Valley to come to San Antonio, there's a border checkpoint about 15 mile, 50 miles north of the US-Mexico border. She cannot go through that without being apprehended. She is in nowhere. She cannot leave. She is restricted by the terrible immigration structure we find ourselves in. Hmm. And I don't know what she's going to do. Jeffrey Hans, can you explain why Planned Parenthood South Texas decided to no longer provide abortions at this time, even ones that, even the few that would make it within that six week period? You know, I mean, it was a very, it was a very difficult, very painful decision to make. The law as it stands is so complicated and has so much stacked against us that we found the risk intolerable. Um, because, so last, as I said, last year we provided a, a abortion care to a little more than 3,000 people. I'll bet 90% of those procedures last year, they're impermissible in Texas right now because they're beyond this five and a half, six week mark. And so we would be providing abortion care for a very small group of people. Not that that is unimportant, but then I have to weigh that against, you know, 90% of our patients of that 24,900 people, they're coming to us for sexual and reproductive health care that is not abortion. They need their birth control. They need testing and treatment and curing of sexually transmitted disease. They need their transgender hormone therapy. They need primary care. And so if we provided abortions in the to the very small number of people in the earliest, earliest few days that we could, we could draw these spurious lawsuits. We could find ourselves being pulled into courts where we would have to be explaining that someone's abortion actually did take place prior to the detection of fetal cardiac activity. And then the amount of time and attention we might be spending on that front eats away from what we're able to be, who we need to be in our clinics, providing all the other healthcare that we do. And, and even then, if you won, you wouldn't even be able to recoup your legal costs, correct? Correct, because they put this just bizarre change to fee shifting that normally would be expected in a civil lawsuit, that if we, you're right, if we even proved ourselves to be within the law, it would take time and our own money just to say that what we did was not wrong. Jeffrey Hans, we're coming up on a break, but before I let you go, do you think most Texans wanted this law? No, no. I mean, this whole idea that, you know, the governor would like to think that this is a red state. This is not a red state. This is a low voter turnout state. The gerrymandered districts and voter suppression that's been engineered by the Texas legislature so that they can hand select who gets to vote for them. You know, the will of the people is completely thwarted. Jeffrey Hans, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood South Texas. Thank you. More form after the break. I mean, This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's been one week since the Supreme Court allowed the restrictive Texas abortion law, SB 8, to go into effect. We're talking about the impact on patients and providers there and in other states. Just before the break, we heard from Jeffrey Hans, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood South Texas. And joining me now is Michelle Goodwin, professor and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her recent book is Policing the Womb. Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle Goodwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on the show. So Jeffrey Hans referred to and about just the kinds of decisions he would have to make with regard to having to prove abortions were legal because he could be sued by basically anyone. And even if he won, the other party would not be paying any of his legal costs. Can you just give us a little more of the full scope of this law, this this provision as well in this law with regard to private 
actors being able to sue? So the law is incredibly unusual in that uh, first, as you talked about with uh, Jeff Hahn, that it has the six week ban at a time in which most people would not even know that they're pregnant. It does not provide an exception for rape or incest. It's the kind of law that even amongst the most conservative of uh, lawmakers on anti-abortion issues, you would not have seen that in a law five or 10 years ago, but it is the kind of new wave of anti-abortion legislating. It deputizes citizens to basically spy on, surveil, and go after, uh, and it legalizes that, other citizens. The state removes itself as an enforcer of its own law. That is an effort to make it much more difficult for those like Jeff Hahn and also um, individuals, any other individual, to try to challenge the law. The law is a kind of morass and entanglement of civil procedure types of things. And as he was mentioning, it provides then a reward or a bounty for people who are able uh, to spot, surveil, and and have some form of success um, in identifying individuals who aided, abetted, or performed an abortion. And it provides them legal fees as well. So this is one of the most draconian anti-abortion laws that's ever been written in the United States, not just of this era of anti-abortion legislating. This is one of the uh, most severe and restrictive anti-abortion measures ever in the history of the United States. And my understanding is that people who sue do not need to necessarily personally know the person that they file suit against and that they can collect at least $10,000 from the defendant as well as the reimbursement of the fees. That's absolutely right. And they can sue in a venue that's most convenient to them. It basically provides standing to any person in Texas. They need not Uh, be affected by an individual who is terminating a pregnancy. They need not know the person who is terminating a pregnancy. They need not have any relationship uh, to that person. And this is what makes this law so incredibly dangerous uh, in that it not only deputizes individuals to engage in this kind of behavior, but one could also see it as weaponizing someone to be able to go after strangers, their neighbors, uh, on whim, on rumor, without having any substantiated knowledge. And there's no other space within our constitutional rights, nowhere else within the first, uh, w- within the uh, Bill of Rights, where people are empowered to do such a thing. This listener tweets along these lines, SB8 is the perfect setup for frivolous and vindictive lawsuits. The law gives any random person anywhere in the country standing. If I'm sued, I'm going to have to expend my time, money, and reputation to defend myself and will not be reimbursed if the suit fails. Listeners as well, how are you processing the decision a week later? Please feel free to give us a call and share your thoughts, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or you can email us, forum at kqed.org. What questions do you have about the Texas law and its impact on those directly affected by it? Who we're talking with today, one of the things that Jeffrey Hans mentioned is that uh, that clinics are referring people out of state if they can. And there are some, including groups like Fun Texas Choice, who are willing to help arrange the logistics for them as well. Uh, And they have chosen to basically interpret that aiding and abetting piece of this to, to allow for this activity. But do you worry about that? Is that not forbidden by SB8? Don't they risk liability here? I'm sure they're worried about it, too, even though they're doing this brave work and seeking to help individuals exercise this very important civil liberty and civil right that's protected by the Constitution and by Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Texas. But yes, the law is written so broadly that it has a chilling effect. And that really was the intention of the law. And in addition to then what the legal concerns are, are the social and cultural concerns with this, this chilling of relationships. So you can imagine a young person who might be 12, 
might be 13, who was raped by an uncle, perhaps her father, or by a boyfriend who would like to communicate to her mother about what happened to her, or tell an aunt, or tell someone else. Now she has to be worried about whether she should do this, whether the family could be sued, whether her mother could be sued, whether her aunt could be sued. And so it chills natural human relationships and makes people afraid to actually talk to each other about this important life decision. I want to bring Nisha Verma into the conversation, an obstetrics and gynecology specialist and adjunct assistant professor at Emory University in the department of OBGYN. Dr. Verma, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here today. And as I'm hearing Michelle Goodwin talking about just the chilling of family relationships, I'm also thinking about just the the strain it puts on doctor and patient relationships. First, Dr. Verma, as a physician who has worked in a state that also attempted to enact a six-week ban around you know, fetal cardiac activity, though, though not the same private enforcement pr provisions that I've been talking about with Professor Goodwin. But I'm curious what the enactment of the Texas law brings up for you as a doctor. Yeah, I, you know, I think that these laws are all really scary for us as people that are trying to provide full spectrum care to our patients. You know, for me as an OBGYN, I, um, I provide full spectrum care to my patients. So I do pap smears, labor and delivery, postpartum care, contraception care, and abortion care. Um, and abortion care is a really important part of the care that we provide. Um, and I think it's really scary to think about how these laws are impacting the care our patients can access, the care that we can provide, um, and, and just their overall health and well-being. Michelle Gunn was also noting the lack of an exemption for rape or incest. The only exemption in SB 8 is medical emergencies, which are generally defined by Texas law as life-threatening physical conditions. Can you tell us why? for an abortion provider, defining medical emergency in practice can actually be really fraught. I think it's really important to remember that these laws are written by non-medical people to regulate the practice of medicine, which is really dangerous and affects all doctors trying to care for their patients, not just abortion care providers. You know, as doctors, we train for many years to be able to provide this compassionate evidence-based care to our patients. And we also understand that no person, family, or medical situation is the same. And so when we're taking care of a patient, we're looking at that unique person in front of us and working with them to make decisions about their specific medical care. And so SB8, it's a one-size-fits-all law that just cannot possibly take every person or medical situation into account. And for us as the people actually practicing medicine, it's actually really unclear what some of this language means and how to interpret it. And so kind of thinking about that medical emergency language as an example, I may see a patient who had postpartum cardiomyopathy in her last pregnancy. And so that's a condition that causes um, the heart to enlarge and not work as well and can happen later in pregnancy or in the postpartum period. And if that person gets pregnant again and continues that pregnancy, her risk of death is actually quite high. And so she may come to me at maybe 10 or 12 weeks with that next pregnancy where she's not actively dying in front of me, but her risk of death and not being around for her existing children, for her family, is high and, and that's a decision that she needs to be able to make with her family and me as her doctor without us all having to try to interpret whether her abortion qualifies as acceptable under this law, how medical emergency applies to this situation. Like this language, it's just not clear language. It's not, it's confusing and it's hard for us to interpret as the people actually providing care what this means, because it's not actually written by medical professionals. Mm -hmm. And we know that Texas has a very high maternal mortality rate and that Black and Latino women have disproportionately worse medical outcomes than other racial groups, much more likely um, to die in, in pregnancy-related deaths. I'm wondering if you saw this disparity in your practice in Georgia? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to remember these laws affect all people. All people need abortions, but I think it is absolutely true that 
um, people that already face the most significant burdens to accessing care are um, patients of color, our immigrant patients, our patients with lower socioeconomic status, they're all disproportionately affected by laws like this. I mean, as we kind of covered earlier, even just thinking about some of the travel that these laws require. And so um, you're restricting abortion in one state and a patient that needs this medical care is having to travel to another state and thinking about hotel costs, childcare, time off work, um, all of those additional factors like that because that's much less doable for people that don't have the means who already are facing other burdens. And so this absolutely disproportionately, these laws very much disproportionately affect people that are already facing the most barriers in our system to accessing health care. And, um, and I think that's a huge issue. Have you seen or do you worry about people seeking alternatives, unsafe alternatives? You know, I think that it's also important to note that um, that people can manage their own abortions safely. Um, there are medications available online that people can access. And so it's not that self-managing abortions is, is something that should be thought of as scary or unsafe um, in the current period. And, and I think that's important. But I also think that People should be people that want to come into a doctor to access their care should also be able to do that. Like we need to allow all these options to be available and people need to be able to come into the doctor to access their medical care. And they also I think it also is a very reasonable option for people that choose to self-manage their care. Before I let you go, Dr. Verma, I just I want to ask you basically just how you how you interpret this movement toward um, limiting abortion access with the Texas law, with the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court did not step in to stop it, even though, as written, it is so contradictory to Roe v. Wade? Yeah, I think that um, we have seen an attack on uh, reproductive access over the past many years. And so, um, like I mentioned, when I was in Georgia in 2019, Georgia did pass a six week ban that luckily did not go into effect, but many states have tried to pass these types of laws, other types of restrictions. And so um, what's happening in Texas is terrible. That's not the only attack. These attacks are happening around the country. And I think it's really important for all of us to, to speak up and um, really talk about how it's, I think most of us, when we go to a doctor, want our doctor to be able to take care of us. We wanna be trusted to make decisions about our healthcare. Um, and these laws really interfere with that. I think as a, a doctor, you know, I trust my patients to be able to make decisions about their lives. They're the experts on their lives and all of these laws are interfering with that. And, and I think it's scary. I think that I don't, I don't know what's gonna happen in the next year, in the coming years. I know that my colleagues and I are committed to continuing to take care of our patients to the best of our ability, but, um, but I think we're all very scared about what's gonna happen and how we're gonna be able to take care of our patients. If you do just have one moment, we did get a question from listener Teresa who writes, how does HIPAA impact the ability to prove an abortion was done? Do you have any insight into that? I think that's a great question. And so HIPAA refers to the confidentiality that we have with our patients. Um, I think that, again, what's confusing and complicated about these laws is we don't know how these are actually going to, to like what it's going to look like on the ground. And mm -hmm. so I actually, I have no idea what again, because these laws are written by non-medical people that aren't actually thinking through the medical situations and what people, what doctors and patients are actually facing. I don't know. I don't know how that interacts. And I don't know if the lawmakers thought about that. Like I, all of this is just confusing and we don't know how this is going to impact. Are they going to, are people going to be able to access our medical records? Are like, I just, I just don't know. And well, part of what's so scary about this. Mm. Nisha Verma, obstetrics and gynecology specialist and adjunct assistant professor at Emory University's Department of OBGYN. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you.
We have Michelle Goodwin with us, professor and director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. And Michelle Goodwin, Noel tweets, can someone step up and become a test case for a court challenge? I'm sure people throughout the nation can help financially at least. That's a very good question. And I think we will see individuals who might be willing to put themselves out there for a test case and who might receive financial support in order to do so. But let's be clear, part of the uh, impetus for laws such as this is to get people entangled and to go down the path of spending a lot of money on lawyers' fees and whatnot. Uh, What is a tragedy in this case is the U.S. uh, Supreme Court's response, where the U.S. Supreme Court refused to intervene, which basically gave the green light and the signal for other states that have been crafting anti-abortion laws to do so with the kind of Texas formula or playbook in mind, and that will give a green light before the United States Supreme Court. So even though there can be those who attempt to challenge the law, what's the likelihood of any kind of success if you're thinking about the Fifth Circuit? which allowed the law to go forward, or the United States Supreme Court, which in a shadow docket, five to four, an unsigned opinion, uh, allowed the Texas law to stand. The Biden administration reports today suggest is preparing to sue Texas over its new law. But the all that I could get from the reports is that the Justice Department is going to pursue an argument that the Texas law illegally interferes with federal interests. Do you have any insight into what that that means, what they could be referring to? Well, we have yet to see what exactly will be coming from the Justice Department and the Biden administration. We do know from a speech that was given by Merrick Garland just a couple of days ago that they will strongly enforce the FAIR Act. Well, of course they should, but the FAIR Act does not necessarily pertain to this, although aspects of it do. What the FAIR Act does is it seeks to make sure that individuals who are seeking to terminate a pregnancy are able to get into clinics and to be able to do so. What some commentators have said is that what the Justice Department has come out saying, it's the equivalent of a house being on fire and sending the police rather than the fire department. Uh, it's it's very important that the Biden administration is standing up and that the Justice Department is asserting how it will protect the interest of individuals who want to terminate a pregnancy. Um, and it's going to be very curious to see beyond the FAIR Act, which is just simply protecting individuals as they try to get into a clinic to be able to terminate a pregnancy, what comes next from them. We're looking this hour at the impact of the Texas law on providers and clinics in Texas and neighboring states. And you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. What are your questions or concerns about the Texas law? You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's been one week since the Supreme Court allowed the restrictive Texas abortion law, SB 8, to go into effect, and we're talking about the impact. You, our listeners, can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, or posting your thoughts or questions about how you're processing this decision a week out at KQED, on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And uh, let me go to caller Michelle in Santa Rosa. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Hi. I was curious uh, to find out how the law affects women who receive trisomy diagnosis, uh, specifically uh, a trisomy 13 that um, apparently babies who have the trisomy 13 do not live outside of utero for more than about a week. Mm. Um, wondering if if those types of abortions are still allowed after six weeks. Michelle, thanks. Does that constitute a medical emergency, Michelle Goodwin? And just for some backdrop, Texas has also enacted uh, laws that are called pregnancy exclusion laws. Um, The term is not exact to what they provide for, but the state of Texas has enacted a law that provides that brain-dead persons must continue to gestate their pregnancies, even if there are threats to the fetus. Uh, There was a case involving Marlies Munoz just a few years ago, a person who collapsed 14 weeks into pregnancy and uh, was brain-dead. The state of Texas forced her to continue to gestate um, a non-viable fetus, um, and this was a against uh, her do not resuscitate order against the will of her 
husband against the will of her parents. They ultimately sued and a Texas judge did not reach any questions on the constitutionality of it and ultimately decided that uh, that life support could be removed from Marlies Munoz because uh, the fetus uh, had very significant abnormalities. That, I think, is informative for this question, uh, but it doesn't give us exact answers. As the law is written, it would seem that there is no sympathy for what would take place in the fetus itself. And let me go next to James in Redlands. Hi, James. Hi. Hi, yes. You know, this is James. Morning. What's on your mind? Uh, my my comment is is that the uh, the state of Texas law has implemented a uh, past communist Russia a KGB tactic uh, where neighbors turn in other neighbors for anti communist activities, and here we are. And, and the United States back then in the 60s, 70s said this was evidence that communist Russia is inhumane. So basically, I'm not hearing any sort of discussion about how how could Texas flip from being what they consider democracy to communistic type tactics, you know, well, and, uh, and pretend that it's not, you know, uh, that it's good. Well, James, your comment echoes a little bit of what this listener writes. Lisa, what's to prevent someone turning, suing people into a business venture. We're assuming they'll only go after people somehow connected to an actual abortion. Michelle Goodwin, we're just hearing concerns about how far reaching this could be with regard to the private actions. Well, sure it could. In fact, there are anti-abortion organizations in the state of Texas that have already uh, set up websites so that people can begin this process of reporting and uh, and suspicion of their neighbors. And as Dr. Verma said earlier, Texas is not the only state that uh, has done this. During the Trump administration, there were Trump administration officials who began programs, which just seems so odd and strange and horrific, of tracking the periods of girls and women in detention centers and things like that, which again, must be seen as part of the same. It's chilling. It's horrific. Keep in mind that this is with a constitutional right. Abortion has not been outlawed in the United States um, as a national platform. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey still stand, and yet we see this rogue activity that's been permitted in the state of Texas. I want to bring Robin Marty into the conversation now, Director of Operations for West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa. She's also the author of Handbook for a Post-Roe America. Robin Marty, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I understand your clinics in Alabama are already taking patients from Louisiana as a result of the hurricane. How concerned are you about your ability to take patients from Texas as well? That is also a place that you have seen patients from, correct? So I am actually, my biggest concern right now is the fact that we aren't seeing more patients from Texas. One of the things that we talked about in the first segment was about how Texas patients are looking to Colorado, looking to New Mexico. We know that they're going to Kansas. We know that they're going to Oklahoma. So it seems like there are options for people who are in Northern Texas, who are in Western Texas. The problem is these same options do not exist for people who are over on the East side of Texas. When it comes to the Gulf Coast region, um, we have an entire region that is without ever having expanded Medicaid. So most people are uninsured. In the entire region, there's a total of seven clinics between Louisiana and the Florida Panhandle once you get outside of Texas. All of these clinics have at least 24-hour notice where you have to come into a clinic, leave for 24 hours, and then return to the clinic. Um, In Mississippi and in Alabama, it's 48 hours. Hmm. These are insurmountable obstacles for lots of people who would normally be trying to get abortions in Texas and now have to move their way further out. Right now, we're seeing some of the Louisiana people come over. We're seeing a handful of Texas. But what I'm thinking is that within a matter of a week or two, maybe three, as this continues, that's when we're going to see the real impact of this law. Because right now, people who are early in pregnancy are holding on and trying to figure out if there is going to be a law suit that's going to make things go back to normal, if there's going to be some sort of way that they will not have to leave their state. And trying to put together the logistics financial 
financially, um, personally, in getting childcare, getting time off of work, all of these steps for people who live in the Gulf, those are far, far more difficult than they are for those who live on the other side of Texas. And even if they do come, I just want to underscore the point you were making that Alabama itself has its own restrictive laws. And so it is very difficult to obtain one there. Do you have any sense of whether Alabama, as some other states have, I believe the list is growing to about seven who've expressed some interest in replicating Texas's law, that, that the same is true in Alabama? At this point, we have not heard any noise about replicating it in Alabama or in Mississippi, but also realize that Alabama is, of course, the first state that passed a total complete abortion ban. Alabama is the state that has has a personhood amendment in its state constitution. Um, so are we expecting something like this to come? Most definitely. Um, has anybody said that they are the ones who are signaling that this is going to happen? And nobody yet, but we also know that what might be a bigger problem for us is that there is talk that this will happen in Florida. And Florida at this point is essentially the only place in the Gulf region where a person can easily access an abortion. It's the only state that has multiple clinics, um, a number of which is proportional to the amount of people who live there. It's the only place that does not have a waiting period. So we already see so many of our patients trying to go over to Florida just because it's so much easier to do it all at once. If Florida ends up enacting something that makes their clinics close, I truly do not know what will happen in the Gulf. Hmm. Let me go to caller Petra in Oakland. Hi, Petra. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm wondering, how is it possible legally that the state can mandate, for example, not to have an abortion after six weeks, but the state cannot mandate to have a COVID vaccine or to wear masks in school? How is it, I mean, I understand how there's, you know, a certain mm. political leaning and so on, but I don't understand how it's legally possible that the state can go into reproductive health, yet not into public health where, you know, other people are affected as in like contagion and so on. Well, Petra, I will let Michelle Goodwin take it, but the political landscape has a lot to do with it, Michelle Goodwin, just in terms That's of what the legislature right. will do, right? That's absolutely right. So to the caller's question, in 1905, the United States Supreme Court said that it was constitutional <clears throat> and legal for a state or municipality to require compulsory vaccination and to be able to do the kinds of things to keep a community safe. And even long before then, we knew that it was legal, again, before the United States Supreme Court, um, that states could quarantine individuals, that the state of Texas has chosen that it will not take certain public health protocols is a choice that the legislature and the governor is making. Legally, they absolutely could, and that would be upheld by the United States Supreme Court. So what we see today is a political choice that's being made by the state of Texas. And notice that it's not alone. It would be a mistake for us to look at this as just about abortion and ignore voter suppression that's taking place in Texas or a failure to notice the anti-immigration movements that are also taking place in these states that are enacting anti-abortion laws. And it would be a mistake not to notice the racial ramifications of all of this being tied together. This is quite triggering for a number of black and brown people in the state of Texas. For black people, this is part of a legacy and history of surveillance, and yet another instance in which a state says, yes, it is legally permissible to track, to hunt, to surveil black people, and in this instance, Black women and other people who can become pregnant. Let me go to Judy in Napa. Uh, Judy, thanks for waiting. Yeah, no problem. Uh, quick question. Can somebody in Texas go after a pharmacist or pharmacy for fulfilling a request for emergency contraception? Mm. Judy, thanks. Similarly, a listener asked Michelle Goodwin, what is the status of the morning after pill? Would pharmacists not be able to dispense this? Well, so far, the legislature in Texas has not interpreted these forms of contraception to be abortifacients. So you can use plan B prior to a pregnancy. So it takes place prior to an embryo embedding in a uterine wall and growing. So it is not an abortifacient. That said, could the legislature in Texas suddenly decide that even though it would be medically inaccurate, that plan B is an abortifacient? Well, they very well could do that. And 
quite scarily, the United States Supreme Court has already allowed some of that kind of interpretation a few years ago in a case called Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. And so that would be disconcerting if Texas mm -hmm. did that. It's likely if it was heard before the Supreme Court, not a lot of confidence that the Supreme Court would lean into science versus leaning into the perspective of legislators who are defining this, what this would be. We're talking with Michelle Goodwin, professor and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law, author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Also, Robin Marty is with us, director of operations for the West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, also the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And Robin Marty, just hearing Michelle Goodwin's last comment, you did write a book, Handbook for a Post-Row America, anticipating this and not necessarily being completely shocked uh, by the Supreme Court's ruling, though I know that you have said that you were surprised that the Supreme Court did allow this to go forward. But I'm wondering if, since you have written this book, what advice you have, what, what thoughts you have, recommendations for people who are seeking to terminate a pregnancy or for those who want to protect or reinstate abortion rights? Right. I'm actually very excited that I'm very excited. That's a horrible thing to say right now. It was advantageous, let's say that, um, that the newest edition came out in March before this all happened. When I rewrote the book and I did that after the COVID, COVID outbreak, because one of the side effects of COVID occurring was that every state that intends to ban abortion used the issue of the pandemic in order to say that abortion was no longer medically necessary and to shut down abortion clinics in order to make it so that they could preserve PPP or PPE for um, other, other hospitals and medical providers. So what hap is happening in Texas right now is in fact a replication of what happened in Texas, I believe it was around April of 2020, when all the Texas clinics were again closed because of Greg Abbott. Um, through that, we learned what, what the holes are when it comes to trying to access abortion outside of a legal clinic setting. And so one of the things that is extraordinarily important if you are either going to obtain an abortion or you are going to help someone obtain an abortion, and this is regardless of whether or not it is completely legal in your state, is to make sure that you are paying a lot of attention to what sort of surveillance is happening around you. One of the things that has happened through the pandemic is that people are using the internet far more often in order to try to source abortion information, to try to source um, where they can find clinics, to try to find money, to try to find medications that are outside of a clinic. All of these things have grown more and more dangerous, um, but especially now for Texans, that can all be seen as aiding and abetting. So there's information in my book, but also online about how to make sure that if you are helping somebody, you are staying as leaving as little of an electronic footprint as possible. For people who are in Texas and believe that they might have the possibility of becoming pregnant, they need to be sure if they are not going to want to continue the pregnancy, not to be speaking to people about that pregnancy, unfortunately. Um, should there be a miscarriage, that could on its own be seen as an attempt to have tried to procure an illegal abortion. And anybody who knew about that could potentially be in jeopardy at that point. This is the kind of surveillance system that Michelle Goodwin was talking about, where we now see people and primarily people in communities of color and low income people who are already lacking in health insurance, already lacking in the ability to have preventative health care, um, good prenatal care, and so already have the worst pregnancy outcomes as it is, are now going to find themselves having to protect themselves, their families, their friends from allegations that they may have tried to obtain an illegal abortion. This is the new future that Texas is set up. And this is the one that they're trying to spread across the country. And Michelle Goodwin, I know we just have a few minutes left, but I do want to give our listeners a sense of where this stands with the U.S. Supreme Court. The expectation is that the Texas law will return in some form, whether someone is willing to be a test case or not. So if you could just talk a little bit about 
the trajectory of the Texas law, but also, if you wouldn't mind just reminding us that they will be hearing a Mississippi case uh, That's right. during the next term. And I do want to encourage listeners, if they want to learn more about this case, that uh, we did do a show on this in May, so you can find that in our archives. But they will be hearing the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which of course also flies in the face of Roe's viability of, of some 24 weeks or so. That's right. That's right. So it's important to know that with the spate of anti-abortion laws that have come into effect within the last few years, that many of them have, uh, there's been injunctions that have been imposed. So this Mississippi law existed, but was not enforced because there was an injunction put in place. Now that's being challenged before the United States Supreme Court. Additionally, not only is there the 15-week ban, but also it provides no exceptions for rape or incest either. The Supreme Court has shifted over the last few years. So in 2016, in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, where the Supreme Court struck down two Texas anti-abortion laws, the court looked differently. You had Justice Kennedy still on the court, siding with the liberals on the court. Um, you see a court that's even different from the 2019-2020 era, where you have Chief Justice John Roberts, again, joining with the liberals and striking down an anti-abortion Louisiana law that resembled one of the Texas laws. Now the Supreme Court is different. There's not only Justice Gorsuch, there's Justice Kavanaugh, and also Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who replaced um, we have replacements of Justice Kennedy and replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The court looks very different. It's a strong six uh, conservatives on the court. And you have Chief Justice John Roberts being the hero in some ways, willing to stand against ideology and look to precedent and safeguard in some ways Planned Parenthood v. Casey, although I wouldn't overstretch exactly uh, the kind of ideology that Justice Roberts has, but right now he's looking to a like a hero for many. Well, one thing that gets me is how much polls do consistently show a clear majority of Americans think abortion should be legal. Michelle Goodwin, Robin Marty, thank you both. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.